0: Thank you, Suncoast Singers. This morning we are in the second of a series called Risk and Redemption on the life of Daniel. Last week we saw that Babylon made it into Jerusalem before Babylon conquered Jerusalem. If you weren't able to watch that message, I encourage you to go back and look at it. Things are happening in a similar way. It is the effect of the world on the heart of the Christian that is the greatest concern. It is not hardship and difficulty that is bad for the Christian. It is the absence of the opportunity to live and live openly for Christ and to face challenge in his name. Let's pray. Father, as we are in your presence this morning, I want to pray that you would bless this moment as we open your word. May our hearts be open. May our lives be offered up to you again in this moment, Lord, as the Spirit speaks individually to each of us. And now, Lord, we look for the divine impress to be upon us. May we understand. May we be willing to make a complete and full surrender. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Recently, I made a trip to the Boundary Waters with about 50-some people, and we enjoyed canoeing in a two-million-acre wilderness. It's a way to grow the confidence of our young people, that they can go where there's not a 7-Eleven or a uh, urgent care around the corner, to where they can plan ahead, be out in the middle of a wilderness with oftentimes no cell signal, a map and a resiliency that comes from working as a team and preparing in advance. I always like to bring something on that trip. I did not grow up a vegetarian. And for those that think my transition away from flesh eating was simple, I would like to suggest otherwise. Some people, when they go to the fair, think that some of the smells are repulsive. I want to assure you this morning that if you grew up eating meat, every one of those smells like a succulent invitation to enjoy what you left behind. Um, I've never smoked. I know for some people, smoking is the same way. Uh, They found pleasure in it. Now, smoking is different than eating meat. I don't want to conflate the two together in any way, shape, or form. What I'm just trying to say is when you leave an old appetite behind, it's sometimes hard. And this morning, I'm holding in my hands a, uh, a poor facsimile of beef jerky. There's no beef in this jerky, so I don't know that it can rightly be called beef jerky. It's a piece of vegetarian salami. Now, if you're not an Adventist and you've never heard of fake meat, we hear a lot about fake news. I'm holding in my hands a piece of fake meat, which I don't eat a lot of because I don't really believe it's that good for me. But when I was transitioning away from real flesh, this was a nice stepping stone. And every time we go into the Boundary Waters, I go down to the basement and get out or my wife does, a roll of that vegetarian salami. I bring up the gray uh, dehydrators, we slice it. Then we put it in strips, we lay it on the dehydrator and all through the night you can just, the house is uh, filling with the smell of salami. When I take it off, I stick it in a Ziploc bag and close it up and I tuck it in my Thwart bag or my food bag for the Boundary Waters and when we get out across the first portage or two and we're hungry, I go up to the other eight people in my group and I say, I brought the good stuff, I've got the good stuff. And uh, some of them love it, and some of them make fun of it. Uh, nobody's refused it yet. I don't have a lot of people lining up for seconds. But uh, for me, I used to love the texture of tough meat, tough meat. I used to love to just chew on it, and the beef jerky was a favorite of mine. So when I dehydrate this, if I dehydrate it too much, it's kind of like a rock. But I stick it in there, and I enjoy its flavor. Now I came back with this beef jerky which is not no beef in it, all right? And uh, I stuck it in my car and I made a big mistake. Every once in a while I miss meals, sometimes it's intentionally, sometimes it's on accident, and they say hunger is the best cook. The Bible says to a hungry man every bitter thing is sweet, but to a full man he loathes even honey. And I was in one of those days where I had missed lunch. And I was very, very uh, famished. So I started looking around for things to eat. And I found a few sunflower seeds. Sometimes I had pumpkin seeds. Little things just to hold me over until I can have a meal. And then I thought to myself, the beef jerky. I've got it. Now, I had made a colossal mistake with my beef jerky. I had taken the bag, this very bag. I had opened the console on my little car. And I had dropped it in the console. Probably in a hurry. The bag was open. Unfortunately, I had stuck something else in the console. Uh, I had bought a number of these Febreze uh, air fresheners that go in your vent of your car, and they so overpower the car that I decided maybe I'd get the right amount of scent if I stuck it in the console. Maybe it would just leak out in the right way. Well, I want to assure you it leaked out all right, and um, as I opened the console, I got a big, strong uh, n- a smell of not salami, but Febreze. I didn't think about it. It's like, well, yeah, the Febreze container's down in there. But then I started eating, and it's like, that's pretty strong Febreze. And then I started thinking, this tastes like Febreze to me. <laughs> the bag had been open, And it's a dehydrated product. And the moisture content in my car and in that little console was higher than the moisture content of the dehydrated soy, uh, what is it? soybean textured vegetable protein or whatever, and it had actually absorbed the flavor of Febreze. I won't be offering it to any of you, although it does smell like beef jerky again with no beef, all right? So this morning, I want this little bit of textured vegetable protein to represent something in your mind, and that is that as Christians... Try as we may, we are swimming, living, breathing, moving in an environment that is more pungent with the influence, the culture, the mindset of the world than ever, ever before. And this morning, especially as I talk about our homes and our kids, the question we have to have is, is there any merit in sealing the bag? In other words, is there any merit in creating a culture at home that's different than the culture everywhere else? Is there any merit in saying no to what goes into these ears and through these eyes into the citadel of the soul? I've lived just long enough and pastored just long enough. 30 years ago, I became a father. I have a 21-year-old as of last week on Monday, the youngest of four, and I know along the way I had to make some decisions. Since their little lives are imprintable, When they were little, and since they're like sponges, I had to decide what gets in the bag, what comes inside my home, what influences am I allowing at school, how are the decisions I'm making shaping their life for the appetite of God and interest in his word there are some things we need to talk about as a church. And I know that my parents' generation, many of them feel as though they went through a period of time in which a clear understanding of what salvation is really about wasn't quite so clear. But I want you to know this morning, friends, that when you give your hearts to Jesus, when you give your lives to Jesus, you have received the gift of eternal life. This is a gift You cannot earn it, and the choices you make after you surrender your heart are not to earn it. The choices you make after you say, Jesus, you're Lord of, well, not most everything, everything. The choices you make after that are a progression of letting God make you ready to live amongst the angels. Are we all clear on this? I fear there are people listening to me who do not understand lordship. They do not understand salvation and they don't understand the work of justification and sanctification in the life. There are many Adventists, I believe, who would like a cheap version of modern Protestantism's grace movement. Well, I'm here to tell you today, grace is wonderful. Grace is complete. Grace is covering. Grace is forgiving. But grace is also empowering and enabling and freedom giving and strength imparting. And what we embrace as Seventh-day Adventists is a living hope in our living Savior who died for you and me, lived the perfect life, and put his arms around us in love to say, let me take you to heaven. Would you walk with me? But on that journey, Jesus is saying to me, am I Lord of this? Would you let me be Lord of that? And while there are a variety of things we talk about in the preparation for baptism, The idea of Christ's Lordship being able to be enunciated by a preacher or a parent is ludicrous. Christ's Lordship will continue to enlarge itself in your understanding of your walk with Him as He says to you, Would you let me be Lord of this? And if the answer is no, then you've reserved a place for rebellion, which will lead to resistance, which will lead to unfitness. Now, I want you to open your Bibles this morning. I'm beginning this sermon just a little bit differently. Go to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 10. And I want to ask you a question. Before the cross, were the disciples converted or unconverted? Go ahead. All of you say converted, say I. All of you say unconverted, say I. More of you think they were unconverted than converted. Well, I'm with the unconverted, okay? They had made a decision to give, to follow Jesus But at this point in time, there was so much in their lives that was still about them. They were bigots. They were ambitious. I don't know all the other problems they had. But I do know this. They had said to Jesus, I will follow you. And what I want you to see in this story is the largeness of God to take you on a journey. Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 17. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They like the power. They envisioned sitting on the left and the right hand of Jesus, and they wanted the power. And they like being able to direct the spiritual forces of darkness to leave. But Jesus is a little uncomfortable with where this is going. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. In other words, I was there when the battle began. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded where? In heaven. Now, I just want you to think about this for a minute. When you held that first little baby in your arms, were they on again, off again, Kelly's? No. Were they to live in doubt about their father's love? No. When they came to the age of accountability and they were self-aware and they could make decisions, did they need to know how loved and secure they were in their mom and their dad's love? Yes. Did any of them go their own way, do their own thing, thumb their nose at their father's desires and wishes at the laws of God brought principally into the home? Yes. They did not cease and do not cease to be my children, and when those chapters of their life were over, they were no less or no more my children than they were before. These men are going to go on quite a journey from being used by God, but being used by God and being available to receive his power does not save you. Go to Matthew chapter 7. We're not going to look now, but we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and there's a whole group saying, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And Jesus says, you'll have to depart from me because we don't have a relationship. The relationship they had was to get from Jesus to get what they wanted. But when Christ called these 12 men, who for a while were relishing in the idea that maybe this, is, maybe this gig's gonna turn out like I thought, Jesus says, listen, there are gonna be moments when you see things about yourself you don't wanna see. You have done things you didn't wanna do. And I want you to remember something. Your name is written down in my book of life. So this morning, as I begin this message, I cannot deny two different facts that if you've come here today and you've given your heart to Jesus, no matter what chapters are in front of you, you are a child of God. Can you say amen? Amen. But the lordship of Christ didn't end when you went down into a watery grave. That lordship was a pronouncement that nobody and nothing would come before Jesus. And if he takes you on a journey, which is what he says he'll do, and if he says the journey gets narrower, the heights get I don't know, you could say more dizzying. Maybe you could just say more gloriously beautiful. But as you walk that narrow way, you should expect that he's going to call you to the high places with him as you go together. But the lordship of Christ is ongoing. Why would you not want to go on a journey with someone who says, I'll pay the price for you before you even know how big it is or even want it? But I'm going to bring you in. Now, bring, coming in is a choice. But we cannot deny two things this morning. Number one, Christ loved us when we were enemies. This is an amazing thing. Against God, naturally, by way of sinful nature, against all things that regard governance and submission. Christ won us while we were sinners, rebels. But when he wins us, he calls us into a life A living life of surrender. Take up your cross and follow me. Paul said, I take my cross daily. I'm dying daily. I'm living a life of continued surrender to the presence of my dear Jesus. This is an amazing thing. Now, the problem with today's sermon is it's going to get in the way of some of your decision making. And for some, it's going to look like legalism and sound like legalism. I wish I could deliver it from that. The problem is the word legalism has become a veil behind which an absence of full surrender hides for many in the modern 21st century. You know, when I was a young boy, I was coming out of a home with many blessings but a number of challenges. And I want to tell you, everything I left behind, I left behind gladly. And I'm going to talk about some of the things I left behind in this message today. But you know what? Your name's written down in heaven. But the journey to heaven is one where daily you say, Lord, be Lord. Thank you for saving me. And you know, it's a glorious thing to be loved like that. I really liked how our teacher, Brittany Birmingham, said it last week in the Sabbath school lesson. When God has to come to us sometimes and he has to say ineffectively, hey, are you doing something you shouldn't be doing? Well, that's maybe part of today's message. So I want to make the journey with you today. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter one. Find the middle of your Bible, go from Psalms to Proverbs to Ecclesiastes, and keep pressing on through the past the book of Ezekiel. And I want us to find Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. It tells us what the value of the book is. Daniel is not just a book full of symbols and prophetic timetables. Daniel chapter 12 tells us that the book is for you and for me. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge shall increase. This book was to be sealed up until the time of the end. Well, obviously, some of the stories have significance, but I'm here to assure you today some of the significance of the story is yet to be discovered by God's modern-day Christians. God has made this book, both in its apocalyptic and prophetic pronouncements and in its illustrations of those living in the time of the end, how to go through with victory. And while we're there, let's look at verse 1 again. It says, now at that time, Michael the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. Michael is guarding us. He's leading us. He's calling us. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the what? In the book will be rescued. Friends, this whole series of sermons is designed so that you won't be flabby spiritually, so that you won't be a spiritual weakling, so that your knees won't quake when the spiritual curtain comes down, and works of evil and demonic presentation is everywhere. I'm here to tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, the empirical method with the emphasis on seeing, being, believing, the scientific method with measurable, viewable, tangible dynamics is an absolute perfect launching pad for when spiritual manifestations are no longer secret in dark places, but they come out in the open. And there's going to be a whole generation of people who don't know what to do. And they're going to turn to the spiritual experts who twist this word, and the last spiritual showdown is going to be on. And this morning, I'm on a journey to show you that with Jesus in the vessel, you can smile at the storm. That the righteous are as bold as a lion, but the wicked say, there's a lion in the streets. There's no way we're supposed to go forward in fear. We're supposed to go to the battle prepared to serve. Now, I'm going to do a little more than I did in the first service. In the book of Genesis, Eve is told, in effect, there's a battle going on in this little or developing universe. And you need to understand, at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is where the voice of evil can be heard. She shows up there, and she is invited to do what? What? what's she invited to do, kids? She's invited to eat the fruit. She has a surrender of trust and obedience in God by eating something God said, don't eat it. Now, we may like to suggest that the habits that have distinguished Seventh-day Adventists for the last 160 years are legalism, I can't keep them from being legalism, do you? If you think you've got to do them to go to heaven, then I guess they're legalism for you. But if you could love Jesus who loved you when you didn't love him, then you could say, Jesus, today, show me where to go. Architect circumstances, show me in the word. I cannot make something that's supposed to be a law of liberty. I can't deliver you from illegalism if you're dead set on turning it into something you've got to do because it says it in the Bible. You know what? What's in the Bible matters. But it doesn't matter a whole lot if you don't understand the God who said it to you. And if you don't want to love Him and don't want to surrender to Him. So let's put it all in the right place. But Eve said, I'm going to eat. It was a sin. It was a rebellious choice. She was deceived. And it evolved and devolved around the dynamic of appetite. Now, it's so significant that our carnal human natures have lots of appetites. Food is just one. Power, lust, all kinds of different things. Envy, greed. But this one thing turns out to be at the beginning of the story, the tripping point. Now, would we be surprised when we come to the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus starts bridging the gap to heaven by overcoming where our forefathers fell? So Jesus goes over six weeks. Well, right at six weeks without eating anything. Forty days. Jesus goes day number one, which is usually the hardest day for as long as I've ever fasted. I've never even begun to come close to the amount of days Jesus fasted. So my guess is farther out down the road beyond anything I've ever gone, it gets a whole lot harder. By day three or four, sometimes you're not even that hungry anymore. And you've started enjoying the mindset of doing something that goes against life, but it gives a different kind of clarity and and sensibility to your spiritual nature. But I want you to know, I've listened to people describe going a week, a week, or longer without eating, and by the time you get to the end of that first week, things can be pretty difficult. But imagine going a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth and almost a sixth. Imagine what it's like when the devil shows up and he says to you, Hey, God's abandoned you. Oh, the sparrows are eating and the flowers, they do have clothes, but you know what? You don't have anything to eat. God's left you alone, and you're not really God. Prove it. Do you know how tempting it is for Jesus to actually reach out and grab something that's composed of granite and in his very hand change its composition to the sweetest loaf of bread you've ever had? But Jesus says, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. He claims the victory over appetite, and through the indwelling Spirit, you can too. He claims the victory over appetite on behalf of me, on behalf of you, on behalf of the entire human race. Don't tell me that what you eat is not a part of shaping who you are spiritually Because when we come to Daniel chapter 1, the way the whole story starts, 12 brief chapters about the time of the end, the very first thing is once again about the role of appetite at the end of time. And the world's trying to tell you, follow your appetites wherever you want to go. And I'm not talking just about food right now, but I'm going to tell you, food at the end is the easiest and best way to begin preparing for victory because you have to eat every day. So why not allow the Lord who makes the bounties of the earth and designs some things to be of prime and optimal benefit to you and joy and pleasure by the way. Why not allow this God to take you on a journey to give you vitality of mind, body, and soul and yes it has something to do with what you eat. Now that's a lot to start a message but I have to do it because every time I preach on Christian lifestyle, it stirs up inside of people what I believe is a call to change. It is a call to grow. It has nothing to do with receiving the gift of salvation, but it has something to do with Jesus remaining Lord. And if he calls you to change what you've done for years, I guess he's God and he has the right to do that. It just so happens today I'm going to touch on one of those things nobody should ever touch on. Why should anybody talk to you about what you eat? Now, that's not really what the sermon's about. But it's what it's built around and its centrality in the story of apocalyptic victory, of the victory at the time of the end, it's got something to do. So when I was a boy and I was done with my greasy fingers from my chicken leg or just finished wiping the hamburger grease off my lips, or enjoying that wonderful steak, or eating down my fish sandwich, or whatever it was, I want to tell you, everywhere I go, when I walk through the Barron County Fair, it all smells wonderful to me. And my salami, my beefless beef jerky, is just some slight little reminiscence of how tough that beef jerky was between my jaws and how salty. And I enjoy just a little fake indulgence if there is such a thing. So, risk and redemption. I'm going to tell you at the start of the sermon, here's the big risk. You're only going to go as far as you want to go then trail's only going to get so skinny, and then you're going to say, Nye. and you know why you'll do that? If you do it, it's because Jesus won't be everything to you. The things I've left behind, the worldly music, the flesh diet, dressing however I want, spending my money however I want, listening to WLS back when it was not talk radio, but back when it was rock and roll, every single thing I've given up, I don't regret one bit. I am thrilled that my Savior has been leading me to a much better life. And here's the other thing. The last thing I want to be in any situation the last thing i want to be in any situation it could be resolving a problem with one of you my children my wife the government wherever it is the last thing i ever want to be in any one of those situations is get your word for you mine is afraid when i've got to talk to somebody i don't want to be afraid When my day comes to stare somebody in the eyes who wants to take away my ability to buy or sell, to live or breathe, I don't want to be afraid. I'm going to heaven. I get special privilege in heaven. I'll be an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will live in his house. I will be closer to him than human beings were ever destined to be. If along the way I pay some of the price he paid, I shouldn't be surprised he warned me. Do I love him? Sometimes I realize I don't, not like I want to. And if you're all honest today, you'd have to say the same thing. So I'm on a journey where I want to be let free, let go. I don't want the devil to have hooks in my flesh. I don't want altars in my heart. Is there anybody here with me that wants to make the same journey? So he's Lord of my salvation And then he's Lord of my life. Now go to the first chapter. Daniel chapter 1, Lord of my salvation. And then by my own free will and glad decision, Lord of my life. What does that mean? Well, you'll have to work that out with him. It's not mine to say, especially in any specific detail. But as the Word of God describes it, I'm going to talk about it. And the White writes in Review and Herald, many who should be setting their tents nearer the land of Canaan are pitching their tents nearer to Egypt. They're not living in the light of the sun of righteousness. These people all have their names written in the book, by the way. Many attend places of amusement to gratify the taste, but no spiritual strength is gained by so doing. And you'll find yourself on the losing side. That's the side I don't want to be on. To encourage the love of amusement is to discourage the love of religious exercises. Oh, you don't say to offer your kids ice cream and, and uh, chocolate bars regularly is to minimize the pleasure of collards or kale or spinach. There's not, that there's not a place to enjoy different types of food. Pardon my taking advantage of the metaphors here. For the heart becomes so crowded with trifling with what is pleasing to the natural heart that there's no room for Jesus. And now we have the elemental problem. My name was written in a book, but I can actually get to the place where I don't want it written in the book anymore. That's what the devil's doing. He's an excellent educator. He knows that if you surround and bring the sensory dynamics up to a certain notch, he knows that if you put circumstances and social circles in place, that pretty soon you can get a person who wants to love Jesus to not really love Jesus anymore. And along the way, the power of their witness is gone A form of godliness, she writes in 1884, she writes, will not save any. All must develop or have, I should say, a deep and living experience. This alone will save them in the time of trouble. That's all that you can take with you into the time of trouble. You can't take your food or your gas or your bank account. None of that's going. It can be taken away from you like this. I got a new cell phone plan yesterday. They can cut me off in a moment. So all the data is gone, all the social networking, all the information, hey Siri, hey Google, it's just gone. But a deep and living experience, that goes with you into the time of trouble. Then their work will be tried of what sort it is, and if it's good, if it's gold, silver, and precious stones they'll be, that are, will be hid as in secret, they'll be hid as if in the secret of the Lord's pavilion. But if their work is wood, hay, and stubble, nothing can shield them from the fierceness of Jehovah's wrath. Your circumstances shape you. This morning, what I want to do is I want to challenge you to find out if the habits of your life are making you strong or weak, if the habits of your life are developing a deeper desire for Christ or feeding and fertilizing the weeds of the world as they're growing. I want to talk to you about muscles for a minute. Some of you really value tone of muscle. Some of you really value shape of muscle. Some of you understand that without well-toned muscles and well-challenged uh, musculoskeletal systems, you're eventually not going to look like you want and have the vitality you want. But I want to ask you something. Do you get muscle overnight? Do you get muscle overnight? Do you really think that the kind of f- sinew and fiber of spiritual strength is going to just show up, that one morning we're going to wake up and find out the final movements were more rapid than we thought? And the truth of the matter is, is that while it, might not, it won't be impossible for God to save you, But it's surely going to be a whole lot harder because no chapters of faith have been written. No exploits of good have been done. And now it's all going to look like you're climbing Mount Everest and you haven't even tried to walk to the top of Beaver Point. The truth of the matter is, eating, drinking, and dressing. I'm going to get more precise. Eating, drinking, and dressing. Youth instructors, May 31, 1894, all have a direct bearing on our spiritual advancement. Now, you either have the greatest prognosticator and preacher of legalism in the pulpit here this morning, or you have one who's projecting the laws of life and liberty. You'll have to decide. Either what's written down here can protect this love relationship with Christ, or I'm anchoring you down in a system of man-made liability-creating, obstacle-developing barriers between you and God. Now, I've spent a lot of this sermon reminding you how your name gets written down in the book. And I'm talking to you about how you can unwrite it. Get the eraser out with your habits and start backing your name out of the book of life. Jesus doesn't want it to be left out. Jesus has paid with his blood to write it in. But the truth of the matter is, she doesn't say eating, drinking, and dressing have a bearing on your spiritual advancement. She says eating, drinking, and dressing have a direct bearing on your advancement. Spiritually. If I said to you when your car wasn't working well, if you pulled into this car into this parking lot and you said, Pastor, you know anything about cars? And I said, Well, I know a little. Lift up the hood. And you lifted the hood up and the engine was sitting there moving like this, I'd know something was really wrong. And I'd have to say to myself, Well, you either have a fuel problem or a spark problem. It's either electrical or it's or it's gasoline. Because engines are balanced, and once they're rocking back and forth in their mounts something is really wrong. And if I said to you, where did you get your gas? And you said, well, they had a real bargain going on. It was half price. And I said, well, how much gas do they sell there? Well, not much. And I said, well, it's very possible that their gas has some kind of pollutant in it. You know, if a gas tank sits too long, condensation, etc., water gets in, etc. you might have water in the gas of your car. And I were to say to you, the quality of gas in your engine has a direct bearing on how this engine runs. I'd say, you know what? We can pop the tank down, empty it out, and put good gas in it, and it'll run different, you'd probably say, pastor, do you know how to do that? Would you help me? And when that engine purred back to life without that laboring to stay going, you'd be saying to yourself, direct bearing. This morning, friends, I need to say to you that eating, drinking, and dressing are not how you become a saved Christian. But if I told you that the way the four cylinders or the eight cylinders or the six cylinders or if you had a really fancy car, the 16 cylinders in your very expensive sports car ran was, had a direct bearing based on what you were doing every day in it you would get to make a decision. My life is hidden Christ. When I changed my dietary habits, I did it for Jesus. When I left off the music, I did it for Jesus. When I changed the kind of things that I were reading and the way I was spending my money, I did it for Jesus. And I wanna tell you something, all along the way, my joy has just kept going up, and my spiritual freedom gets to be more and more with the passing years. But if I were to perpetually hook myself to the idols and the habits of the past, my name could still be in the book, and I could be fighting in a way I don't wanna fight, and constantly hobbled in a way when I wanna run. This morning, I need to remind all of you that you're to study to show yourself approved, and let Jesus be your Lord, and take the next step. But if you're thinking, dressing, living, eating, spending, and entertaining like the world, even though your name's written in the book, eventually the devil, as a slick educator and a fine mentor, is going to get it to the place where you really would kind of like to see it erased. Sober. So sober. But how sober will it be on the day in which all of a sudden the world changes, and it's not just 9-11, and we change for a little while, and then we gravitate back. And it's not just 2008 when it appears that the financial sector's imploding. And it changed for a little while, and then we go back. And it's not 2020 where we all get used to not touching each other and wearing masks and opening windows and bumping elbows, and we all gravitate back. What's gonna happen when the final chapter comes and all of a sudden the opportunity to develop some spiritual sinew and muscle is over? That's what I'm stuck with <laughs> That sounds kind of bad, but that's what I'm stuck with as a pastor of an apocalyptic movement. And I look around and I see so little spiritual vibrancy. And while this church is on a growing journey and I'm encouraged by what's happening, friends, I eat every day. The Bible says, whatever you do, Let's just get this real simple, lest you think I'm a legalist. This is what Paul, the pronouncer of Romans, says. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do what? All for the glory of God. I didn't make this up. Please don't send me quotes from the book of Romans or somewhere else that makes it look like what he says in other places doesn't get it together. Jesus is Lord. When he asked me to let go of McDonald's, at least the McDonald's I used to eat, I let go. It wasn't easy. That first veggie I had was something like rubber and salt. And the truth of the matter is they've improved it a lot today to where you can hardly sense you're moving from one lane to another. But the fact of the matter is, is that whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I'm trying to do it all for the glory of God. I went into Toyota the other day to get my car worked on. I'm in there sitting down. In comes a woman who's not properly dressed. I'm sitting right here. I want to be a pure man. I want to love my wife, and I want to love her in the way she wants me to love her. You know, the devil, he's a slick dude. So in comes this woman. I don't know if she makes a profession of Jesus or not. If she does, her church doesn't teach like us. And if I'm sitting here, she sits right there. And so I sit there for a little bit, and I have to make my mind up. Am I going to sit here on and on and over and over? Or am I going to do what the Bible says? So after a minute or two, I decide this isn't good. So I gather my stuff, I pick it up, and I go to another room. Now, am I a legalist? Ask my wife. See what she thinks. Does she want me sitting around watching women that haven't covered themselves up properly? Or would she like for me to have no impure idols in my heart? Christ is so practical. I want to be free to love. Now every other man sitting in this room, since there was a book written called Every Man's Battle, don't be surprised. The devil when there was those Moabite women just before they crossed over the Jordan, they released the Moabites. The Moabites have been released in our society, friends. That's just a fact. And so now your husband has to walk through life, or your wife, I don't wanna make it just a man issue, but your husband has to walk through life saying to himself, like Job said, I'll make a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a virgin. Of course, the look was the wrong kind of look. Is it practical, is it real? If it's not practical and it's real, the message is not for you. You'll leave here frustrated and angry. But when Daniel gets out of Jerusalem, Forcibly, I should say, is taken out of Jerusalem forcibly. He is on a journey where he will be put in the most pagan, powerful nation of the day. And somehow, he becomes the most listened to person in all the realm. And he lasts not only from the days of Nebuchadnezzar, he lasts all the way to the days of Cyrus. That's chapter 1, verse 21. And can you believe this? Daniel comes in, he decides ahead of time he's not gonna defile himself and he goes about it in such an interesting way. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. And so, what does he do? Does he march into the presence of the commander, the steward of, of the captives, and say, I'm not doing this? No. He's humble, he's beautiful, he's thoughtful even to the people who have probably mistreated him. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Friends, there is a nobility about true Christianity that will get the attention of the world. There is a nobility about men and women and children who know how to show honor where honor is due and yet be in their heart and mind honoring God above all others. Daniel's on a journey, and I need to tell you something. You don't go from being a nonconformist You don't go from being a conformist in Jerusalem to all of a sudden saying, well, boys, I think we ought to not go along with the crowd today. The truth of the matter is the pressure to conform in Babylon was multiple times higher than the pressure to conform in Jerusalem. If you can't be a Christian in Bering Springs inside the bubble, what makes you think you're gonna be a Christian when the pressure's on and you have no rights? The truth of the matter is the day to be who God called you to be is today. Who's he calling you to be? Beautifully, humbly, sweetly, uniquely different. I'm not looking for somebody who throws around their spiritual convictions like a badge of superiority and neither's God. But where are the men and women who can humbly say, Lord, you're in charge. It's feeling pretty uncomfortable right now. What do I need to do? I'll do it. This is Daniel. And he wins the favor in such a powerful way that he becomes the most listened to man in the sixth century before Christ. The other day, I was out on a walk last Sabbath afternoon, and uh, it was raining, at least threatening and on and off at different times. My wife and I had our umbrellas. There weren't a lot of people out walking. It's probably about six, seven o'clock in the evening, and we're walking about where the road goes from pavement to dirt, and all of a sudden, this car just slinks up behind us real silently. I turn around, and I'm looking at this big, white, stretched Lincoln Continental limousine, Wow, don't see those cars out here very often. The man pushes the button, and the window comes silently down. And then everything changed. We had a little man moment. He decided to get the awkwardness out of the way. He said, uh, obviously, I'm lost. He broke the ice. Obviously, I'm lost. He wanted to know where he could go get gas so that when he picked the wedding party up after the wedding at the wedding barn, There wouldn't be a crisis, you know, of fuel to the engine. I don't know why he didn't have his GPS out. It was a God-ordained appointment, I'm certain. And, you know, I thought to myself, really, I didn't think about it. It was just natural. But we stood there, and we had a, a nice visit. It was about more than how to get back. He didn't want to go straight because the road turned into dirt, and he had a nice white limousine. And he didn't really want to back up because the car was like twice as long as anything you've ever driven. But I explained to him the only way out was backing up. And you know what, friends? For some of us, the only way out is going to be to back up. We're going to have to go back and say, you know what, I made a decision back there that's not serving me very well. When his window silently went up, I said to my wife, I hope his day is a little better for visiting with me. Is that how people feel about you? Yesterday I went to get a new cell plan got to add a person or two onto my plan. I knew it was going to take a while, but it took me four hours. Now, four hours is a long time. My wife was there in the beginning. Eventually, she left, went shopping, went home. Finally, I said, when this is about 20 minutes from over, I need you to let me know. I want to call my wife. You know what? I had such a pleasant four hours with those people that I did not plan to have. They were sweet and polite and courteous. They had computer troubles. I was working on six lines, which isn't gonna be short, porting numbers over and everything else. My wife comes back at about six o'clock, and as we're walking out the door, this is what she says to me. She says, I think you have new friends. I'm planning to go back and see them. It was supposed to be, God ordained it. They weren't an interruption. They weren't a speed bump on my busy life. They were God's appointment for those four hours. Is that how you look at life? Do you believe there's a God that's architecting every day? And is there a sweet environment that goes with you? I want to ask you, when the Bible says that Daniel was given favor in the eyes of Melsar, was it a work of a moment or was it a work of making? Was it something that was a part of who he was becoming to where he wasn't impatient and rude and that people weren't in his way and servants, but they were actually people that he was supposed to meet and people that he was supposed to impact? There is a sweetness about God's people. There's a beauty about Jesus that only comes when your life is simple and surrendered. And I'm here to tell you, the sophistication of modern Seventh-day Adventists is dry as the hills of Gilboa. You were called to be a child by Jesus who said, unless you become as a child, there's no walking through the gates. And do you understand when you lose that simplicity, you no longer listen and obey the same way? Christ called Daniel and his three friends. They decided ahead of time who they were going to be. They were noble and respectful about it. They had been trained in Jerusalem. Yes, in Berrien Springs, you can be trained to be your own person. Mom and dad, be your own person. Train up your children like you think they should be trained up. Five reasons I don't think he ate the meat, straight from our Bible commentary. Number one, it was probably unclean. Everything's not fit to eat. Some things are the cockroaches and the sewers. Of the animal world. Don't put them in your body, they won't do any good. Number two, the animals were probably not properly slaughtered. He was a Jew, and there was a way to eat meat if you were going to eat it, and it wasn't supposed to have blood in it. Number three, and maybe most preeminently, it was a pagan community, and most things that were eaten were offered to the wrong God first. Number four, it was luxurious food. It was unhealthy, and he understood temperance. And lastly, something I learned in preparing for this sermon, Daniel was a vegetarian before he went to Babylon. And that's not because I read it in the Bible, although I think there's room in the Bible to see it or infer it. Spirit of Prophecy and the youth instructor in the 1880s says it to be so. And so Daniel is choosing in the midst of a spiritual crisis where his life might be on the line. And by the way, Melzar, which is a, a, the Hebrew word is really not a name title. It is really just a title. Melzar, or the commander of the eunuchs, says, my head may roll if we do this. Something about Daniel was so impressive that he said, I'll take a risk, little though it be, and you know how it turned out. Daniel ends up becoming the superior of superiors. And I don't know anybody here who has kids or grandkids, I don't know any young person here today who wouldn't want to be on the side of excellence with Christ. No fear. This is the trajectory of greatness that only God can give you. How do you get that spiritual muscle? I'm not going to take the time to go over too many quotes, but I am going to read just a few obstacles make men strong. It is not helps, but difficulties, conflicts, rebuffs that make men of moral sinew or women. Too much ease and avoiding responsibility have made weaklings and dwarfs of those who ought to be responsible men or women of moral power and strong spiritual muscle. So how are good at you are dishing responsibility to somebody else? Let somebody else do it. You want to make yourself into a dwarf? Go ahead. That's not my plan. As a matter of fact, if there's a song we ought to sing before this series is over, is standing by a purpose true, heeding God's command. Honor them, the faithful few, all hail to Daniel's band. How about this one? Many giants, great and tall, stalking through the land, headlong to the earth would fall if met by Daniel's band. This is who God's calling us to be. When we give away responsibilities, parents, when your children are not bearing responsibilities like they should, age appropriate, you're actually bringing them not only to an unfitness for the spiritual showdown, but even a a fitness for regular job keeping and marriage making and relationship sustaining. Parents, make every effort in in your power to place your children in the most favorable situation for forming the character that God wants them to form. Use every spiritual sinew and muscle. Now, here's the problem in some homes. In some homes, mom and dad are leading the way in spiritual laziness. Some homes, God sends children to raise up the standard. She writes in the third testimony, too much ease and avoiding responsibility have made weaklings and dwarves. She goes on to write in the fifth testimony, spiritual sinew and muscle, they will grow when we, and we will be strong to work for God when we have clear spiritual perceptions and a steady increasing faith and when we pray. Prayer will give you spiritual strength. But for some, praying for more than a minute or two is like torture. Why? You need to ask yourself, why? Lord, what am I supposed to release? Why is it that talking to you is the most wooden and unsatisfactory experience I can get? God wants to set us free, but he's going to talk to us. He's going to say, I'll tell you why. Why? Prayer is the breath of the soul. Bible study. By simple, earnest, contrite prayer, heavenly mindedness is greatly increased. No other means of grace can be substituted and healthiness of soul preserved. Prayer brings the soul into immediate contact with the wellspring of life. And she goes on to say, it is the privilege of all who partake of the bread of heaven by studying the word, thus to gain spiritual sinew and muscle. Probably the most powerful verse in all of chapter 1 is verse 14. Look at it there with me. It says, speaking of Melzar or the commander of the eunuchs, so he listened to him or to them in this matter. If you had an important message to bear, would your life represent the credibility equal to the importance of the message? Could people sense the kindness, the beauty in your life? And I want to ask you, When it comes to a life of educating, you need to understand the difference between teaching and training. My youngest son's girlfriend is in medical school at Loma Linda. She studies anatomy and physiology with an earnestness that would make you glad for her to be your doctor someday. But let me ask you a question. If she never walked into a cadaver lab and identified an organ in real life, how much would you want her as your doctor? You don't want to go to a barber who's never held a pair of scissors before. You don't want to fly in an airplane where they've never held a yoke in their hands. You don't even want to go for a drive with a kid that's never put their hands on a wheel before. You don't want a brick mason who's never held a trowel or a carpenter who's never held a hammer. You don't want to be in the position of people that have only been educated but never trained. When my son became a physical therapist, there were great rigors of academic effort in the first year, year and a half. And I'm not saying that rigors went away, but after they were done with the books, they went out and started practicing under a practitioner what physical therapy is, how it works. When it comes to the actual experience of Christ, it's not enough for you to sit here and listen to a sermon or even read the Bible. There's an application of the principles. There is an experience of Christ that's to come in and take over. God makes it clear that he wants to take us and make us into the most credible people in a skeptical age. It is with the nobility, the humility, the kindness, the self-control. It is with the thoughtfulness, the patience, all of these things. Satan is tracking us. Be careful, for your enemy goes about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So friends, how do we reverse this? How do we reverse this? Pastor Dennis, what are you putting in your kids' hands? A lot of them know how to hold this, right? A lot of them know how to kick a soccer ball or throw a little white hardball with red stitching. A lot of them can hold a pigskin. I'm afraid that too many of us know how to hold this. Volume up, volume down, channel up, channel down. We know for a fact that much of modern society doesn't want to be in a situation where they're not holding this. when we start looking at life, where is our time and priority being spent? But do you know how to hold this? There's only two things you hold in the armor of God, the shield of faith and the sword of the Word. And do you understand that if You're like my beef jerky, and you leave the bag open for your children, the devil will come in, and he will tincture and punctuate and take away the fragrance they were designed to have and make them taste like his version of Febreze. Our children need to be in the soup kitchens. They need to be in the homeless shelters. They need to be preaching the word in other countries and laying block and brick and spreading mortar and mixing concrete. They need to be in the different places of our society, the, the, uh, the birthrights, the places where people are battling for young women to keep their babies. They need to be making the quilts. They need to be over at neighbor to neighbor, sorting the clothes. They need to see the brokenness and be a part of the healing of a society. And they need to be prepared through Bible study with their parents, not just with the pastors or the teachers, to where when the devil comes at the end in the form of Goliath and he says... What's going on here? I come before you, and you send out the dogs. And like David, they say, I, you come to me with all this paraphernalia, but I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord. In effect, they draw the sword of the Spirit of which they are familiar, and they've been empowered. They've got spiritual muscle and sinew, and they say in the name of Jesus Christ, touche. I'm here to tell you, friends, If we're not careful, there'll be no army of youth. It doesn't say rightly educated, it says rightly what? Trained. We are educating still because education still matters to us. We want, if our kids get into Harvard or Princeton or Yale, we think that's some great accomplishment. Friends, if your kids get into the ministry of teaching or pastoring or something else like that, that's greater. And there's more and more that are called, and some are trading off the call for money and prestige and ease in the American dream. It's going away, but Christ is still coming. And I'm here to tell you this morning, if they don't know how to hold the sword of the word, they're going to be run over, chewed up, and spit out with eternal loss being the result. So is a music lesson more important than a prayer meeting? And by the way, there's a lot of meetings that are gonna go away, but the prayer meeting will go right on up until we see Jesus. There'll be a prayer meeting going on when the little cloud appears in the eastern sky. Your kids are not too little to come here and listen to the stories and share testimonies. It's 40 minutes long. And this is not me trying to somehow boost my corporate meeting ego. It's me saying to you, prayer brings strength. When my life is surrendered to Christ and I put it all out to him, my son called me up the other day. He said, Dad, I want to run something by you. I want to make a decision. And then he began to talk to me and he said, and I had prayed about it. Oh, my heart, thrilled. And I said, well, you know what? You keep praying about it and look, ask God. didn't say it exactly like this, but ask God for the eyeglasses to see his providence. You know what? Strong. These children are going to be giving the message when the adults can't. There'll be laws against you and me, but if they don't know if it's not the focus, our educational centers need to be more focused on making sure our kids know sacred history and prophetic future in the Word. This is where we're going. And I want to tell you something. It won't be long. I drove into this church this week, and while I'm driving in, I'm listening to a program, a secular program. And the program which is supposed to be news, is advertising a program on TV called Supernatural. Well, I want to tell you, it was dark and it was evil and it was on national public radio, which I'm not sure why they have to do this, but they make themselves promoters of that which fits the evil of this age. So what's going to happen? One of these days, not too far from now, Spiritual manifestation is going to overwhelm everybody. Demons working miracles. And when that moment comes, people who have not anchored themselves in the word are going to be blown away. Swept off their feet, believing that a new revival is upon us. It will be a false revival. And in that false revival, eternities will be lost. I want to end with this. Peter came up to a moment of crisis. Jesus knew it was on him. He knew he wasn't converted. His name was written in the book, and the devil wanted to take it out. Jesus says to him before the great temptation, he says, Peter, I've prayed for you. To every Christian, to every Christian, To you and to me comes the word that was addressed to Peter. Satan has desired to have you. He wants to sift you as wheat, but to every Christian, these words come. I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Thank God we're not left alone. This is our safety. Satan can never touch with eternal disaster one whom Christ has prepared For temptation by his previous intercession. For grace is provided in Christ for every soul, and a way of escape has been made so that no one need fall under the power of the enemy. Friends, you may have done things, been things, you may be something right now you don't want to be. Take courage. To every Christian, the words that were addressed to Peter have been said I'm praying for you. And your faith doesn't need to fail. You're not left alone, I'm by your side. Friends, today's the day to decide who you're going to be. If you got to back up like the white limousine and go the other direction, go ahead. It's not that you gain your salvation in doing it. It's that you protect your experience through surrender. It's that your love for Jesus recognizes a competitor and says, no, I don't want anybody to go out of this place today with a convicting, weak conscience. But if somebody leaves this place today knowing they're loved by God and they cannot deny the major message Christ is trying to get through to him, praise God. And remember, friends, when the day breaks out and you are called to be the Daniel of the day, there's a God standing by your side who with him in the vessel, you can smile at the storm, friends. When trouble comes, the Bible says the righteous are not afraid of it. You're not to be afraid. Give your heart back to Jesus again in this moment. Right now, I'm inviting you. And whatever he says to you from the word, if it seems off, check it out with somebody else. Please, call a pastor, call a friend. But if you've simply slipped away from fidelity to Christ and he's calling you back, go. And may the world listen to you, the skeptical unspiritual world that says there's something beautifully different about that person. But make no doubt, when the tide comes, Christ is calling you to stand and be brave. May God help us. We'll sing our closing hymn.